From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I want to get right over to Dave Majors. He is Chief Executive Officer at Mecham Auctions, and they've got uh, uh, the Mecham Montgomery auction coming up August 12th through 14th in what is now a record-setting collector car market. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Greg Jarrett had a 1957 MGA hardtop racing coupe and blew out the freeze plugs one morning doing 140 miles per hour when he saw a cop suddenly let off. <laughs> changing compression blew them all out can we find him another one i'm sure that we probably can do that we don't i don't think we have one in the monterey lineup but we certainly have a lot of interesting replacements if he if he uh, so chooses so let, let's talk about some of that lineup what do you think is the the hottest car that's going to be auctioned off in a couple days here well, you know, Monterey is always a, a pretty unique event for us, and it's uh, we. This will be our 17th event since we went back to auction in in June of 2020. We, we've seen a lot of beautiful cars, but I don't think I've seen a collection uh, like I have uh, coming up Monterey for the next three days: Thursday, Friday, Saturday next week. And there's it's such an eclectic mix. It's kind of one of those that whatever you're looking for, there's you know just in my mind the the, the cars that I look at. Uh, that will be there. There's a 1929 Duesenberg Model J, which is, and it's a convertible, which makes it very unique. And those, you know, everybody knows uh, Duesenbergs were spectacular vehicles to begin with. They were in their day back in the 1920s and 30s, and and they still are today. But then there's a couple of other, um, what I think are are going to be very interesting cars. A 1952 Ferrari 340 that raced at Le Mans. In oh yeah, we saw that. Yeah, the blue car raced to a fifth place finish. Um, you know, again, kind of a one of one car that's uh, I think is going to attract a lot of attention. And my personal favorite, if you've seen any of the pictures online at, at Meekum.com, is the '36 Delahaye Type 135 teardrop. If you're familiar with Delahaye's, uh, they Delahaye's to me are the epitome of art beauty. Oh, that's like the vehicles. Ralph Lauren car, right? Ralph Lauren has. Yeah, one exactly. They're just absolutely, every one of them, regardless of what model or year it is, every one of the Delahays is absolutely beautiful. And I think this is, this is probably the best one I've seen in, in my career. So I'm, I'm just excited to get to Monterey and get out on Del Monte golf course and see 600 beautiful cars and, and get, get things underway. I love the Ferraris. The 340 is amazing. You've got a 72, um, 365 Daytona that looks yeah. quite cool. A 65, 500 super fast, um, which which Kaylee and I both love. But we're more into muscle. You know, Kaylee's dad has a GTO. 68. 
Yeah, the and goat. oh yeah, God bless him. I'm looking at you know the Riviera. I like uh, Big Al has a Riviera. He's got a '68 uh-huh. Impala convertible um, that that looks really nice. Who is Big Al? I'm looking at Big Al's collection. He's got a lot of cars for sale. Yeah, actually, I I can't disclose that. I, I can tell you he is from uh, the Northwest. I see, and that's about as that's about as far as I can say. That's that's why it's listed as the Big Al collection. <laughs> well, he's got a lot. A, even though that's a pretty eclectic group of cars too, because I think it, you know, as you mentioned, like a Riviera, but there's a lot Ferrari. Yes. So it, you know, that's uh, that's kind of one extreme to the other. But well, for me, a Riviera means you've got taste, and a La Ferrari means yeah. you have money. So <laughs> yeah, we just we just came from uh, uh, from our auction in Orlando, Florida last weekend, and there was a collection of I believe thirteen Rivieras in that in that auction from one collector. And all of them meticulously restored beautiful cars. So how much are these going for? I remember um, watching Meekum Auctions one morning, probably a decade ago, and um, seeing a Barracuda go for like 3.4 million bucks. And I was like, oh, my <laughs> <Yeah>. God. Unbelievable. <laughs> convertible. So, yeah. but, but, so, so what, are, what are we talking about for American muscle? It just seems amazing to me to see them going for Ferrari prices. Yeah, you know, it, it really depends, um, and, and certain models are hot at certain periods of time. Uh, Corvettes are particularly hot right now. It uh, depends on the model, depends on the make, depends on the restoration. But American muscle cars, you know, there are those that, you know, I might call beginner cars that from the 60s and 70s that, you know, you might be able to get into for $20,000 or less. And then there are some that are in the millions of dollars, depending on what they are. And, you know, the Hemi Cudas. Uh, the Daytona Coupes, um, the Superbirds, those cars um, attract a lot of attention and, and obviously attract a lot of dollars as well. You know, here in New York, the auto show, they just canceled yesterday because of concerns around the Delta variant. Do you expect any disruptions, not just at Monterey, but in your events and auctions throughout the fall? Will that just mean more bidders online? Well, we, as I said, we came back to live auctions in June of 2020 with a, uh, a revised 11-page safety protocol and a completely different business model for for live auction events, for live attended events, and we we've become uh, very good at at executing on that model. So we're we're prepared as Meekum Auctions as we have been for the last 16 months to to take whatever comes our way. But we do see because of the Delta variant um, going back, for instance, to the Orlando auction last weekend. Uh, in the middle of that auction, the mayor of Orlando issued an indoor mask order, so we mm. were ready to comply with that. I don't think since Monterey is an outdoor auction on the golf course, I'm yeah. not really expecting much yeah. to change between now and then. But certainly as we look forward to the rest of our uh, 2021 schedule and even into 2022 with places like Dallas and Chicago and Las Vegas, yeah, I think we're probably going to see uh. a little tightening of the of the restrictions. All right, Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure to talk. Dave Majors, Chief Executive at Meekum Auctions on Monterey, coming up. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com. 
Let's get over to Nick Freelingheisen right now. Bring it back to markets. He's managing director at Chilton Trust. He's a portfolio manager of equities there. And Nick, you know, we we uh, were talking with uh, Brent Schutte a little bit earlier, and he was pretty bullish on um, uh, on the cyclicals and also on you know smaller cap stocks as well as European equities, saying that he thinks some of the money is going to come back in from the bond market and from these super growthy mega tech. Uh, mega cap tech stocks. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, uh, first of all, it's nice to be with you guys today, and thanks for having me on. Um, you know, I think that that's perfectly possible if, in fact, we get a sharp move higher in rates, um, because I think that sort of growth quarter to date has basically been dominating value, right, by about 350 basis points, because I think the concern more recently is sort of um, peak earnings growth, peak GDP growth, peak you know, easy Fed, easy money policies. And I think there has been sort of a return to a focus on quality mm-hmm. and sort of durable growth, which is actually as, as a sort of a investment philosophy is where Children's Trust sort of focuses. But I think that's perfectly possible. I mean, look, we're, we're reasonably constructive broadly on stocks. And, you know, we have a lot of clients ask us constantly, sort of, are, are we in an equity bubble? And um, I just think that, you know, the liquidity backdrop here is it's really pretty extraordinary. It's, it's unlike, you know, anything we've seen in a long time. You've got corporate balance sheets sitting on over $2 trillion. You've got consumers sitting on $3 trillion in excess savings. And then this morning, the journal found it interesting to note that both J.P. Morgan and Bank of America are talking about sitting on $1 trillion in unused corporate credit. So, mm. I mean, I think that all bodes quite well for people buying pullbacks in this market, but also for sort of an imminent CapEx cycle that could be coming. So obviously there's a lot of money sloshing around in the system. Where do you think that money is going to be going? Not just obviously equities broadly is what you think, but but where in the equity market do you think is going to see the, like, the highest uh, returns going forward? Yeah, I mean, our focus really is on durable growth, and we like to own businesses where we don't feel like we need to rely upon cyclicality. Um, so, I, you know, I think that um, it, it'll really sort of depend on sort of the inflationary picture going into next year. We sort of have a view that what we're seeing currently in, in inflation isn't sort of something that's structural and going to be persistent. We actually think a lot of the inflation is concentrated in sort of a select group of goods. And I think if, if growth slows into 2022, I think people are actually going to return to a focus on quality and growth. Um, and that's really sort of where our bread and butter is and where we focus our investments as a firm. What are you expecting in terms of the jobs number on Friday and, and really in, uh, in terms of jobs coming back throughout the rest of the year? I, I mean, I think the print is sort of the expectation is anything short of a million would be a disappointment. Um, but, you know, I think the return of labor is a critical component uh, to sort of putting some of the inflation fears to rest, because I feel like um, as a firm, we're sort of focused on this issue that, you know, consumers really never went through a recession in 2020. The sort of extraordinary thing about it was, you know, uh, disposable personal income was actually up 6 percent. But then on the other side, you had sort of massive supply chain bottlenecks that were a result of manufacturing and production really ramping down, uh, thinking that it would be several years before we got back to 2019 levels. Uh, Really, you know, the hope is that we're going to see a lot of job growth, you know, particularly in things like manufacturing and logistics, 
um, but uh, as well in things like food service and, and hospitality and leisure, because I think that's a critical component of sort of quieting this issue that we have with sort of, you know, inflation and, and availability of labor. Yeah, so we know the Fed is watching the labor market story and the inflation side of the story. And even if inflation is transitory, a lot of companies are raising prices. They're faced with higher input costs and they're passing that right on to the consumer. Do you expect that to remain the case in margins to hold in? Yeah, so that's the big concern in, in the second quarter. I mean, look, the second quarter earnings, corporate earnings have been fantastic. If we were assigning classroom grades, I think it would be a straight A. The concern is the the ability to pass on input cost inflation. So, you know, you're seeing sort of in, in, a, in a case like Clorox this week, you're seeing sort of that becoming a, a, a very big issue. I would sort of contrast that with, you know, one of our largest holdings is Sherwin-Williams, where 80 to 85 percent of their of their cost of goods sold is is impacted by commodity inflation. Well, they pass about 10, 10 to 11 percent of that on in price because they can without an impact on demand. So I think if you're investing, it's critical to sort of be focused on on businesses that have pricing power that can raise prices without a big impact in terms of elasticity of demand. Um, but I think, look, in the second half of this year, comparisons are going to become more challenging. And I think for the next three to four months, the CPI readings are going to be hot. So this is an issue that will continue to be with us. And I think investors are going to be focused on it. Nick, great to get some time with you. Really appreciate your insights. Nick Freelinghuisen there is a managing director at Chilton Trust, where he's also a portfolio manager of equities. Now, we've been getting increasing um, headlines about the a delay to the return to work. Janet Elkin joins us right now, president, chief executive officer of Icon Medical Network out of Dallas, Texas. And Janet, is this getting worse, you know, as we speak? It seemed like, for example, for vaccinated people, um, this pandemic was kind of over, but now a lot more breakthrough cases are scaring employers. There are. And of course, although in most cases, breakthrough cases are not are not serious. They're not going to send anyone to the hospital. Still, overall, we've got a lot more people that are getting sick that are unvaccinated. And the hesitancy is obviously causing issues. And then people are also concerned, I think, about going back to the office if they have younger children at home as well. So let's talk about what the environment is like in hospitals. I saw a story earlier this week about the rising number of hospitals in Florida where they're having serious staffing shortages. Something like 13% of facilities say they are short on vital personnel. Um, Is this a situation that's going to get worse in terms of the people who are caring for those who are sick? I am concerned about it. You've got, as we all saw, burnout, right? So many different kinds of healthcare workers that either took early retirement or just left because the burden was too difficult for them, I think emotionally as well as physically, but also realize that you've got so many more patients that are coming back in for things like elective surgeries. So it would have been a busy time anyway, people that postpone things, and then also the long haulers. So you've got all that going on along with the rise of the Delta variant, and it's sadly a perfect storm. How much do we know about long-haul COVID? Um, It seems like one of those... real concerns like chronic Lyme disease that's just so hard to put your finger on? 
Well, you're right. And, and actually, we don't, there's a lot we don't know, right? But I will tell you this, that the rise in demand that we've had for, say, pulmonary physicians or cardiology because of what we're seeing in some patients with heart and lung is really causing that kind of increase in demand um, for us to be able to provide physicians. Can we talk and about... We don't know yet. Yeah. yeah, there's the return to office on, on one hand, and then there's what people have to do in order to return to the office. And a lot of companies are mandating that their employees must be vaccinated in order to do so. And we've seen mandates like that put in for healthcare workers as well here in New York State, where Matt and I are frontline medical workers that work for state hospitals have to do that. Is that the right policy well, I think it's a question of do you want people to be safe and what can we do to mitigate this? And so if you've got the idea of healthcare workers, the people that are there to protect and take care of patients, if they have it, then it's a situation that you think, how are we ever going to get out of this? And I think that I think in most cases, the majority of the healthcare workers that we deal with, they understand that. But you're right, it's accelerating across the country literally every day. I'm getting more emails from clients that say, all right, now we're making it mandatory. Your physicians cannot, your nurses cannot come back to work unless they're vaccinated. By the way, Janet is, I uh, notice, a resident of, uh, uh, sorry, uh, a native of New York City. Ah, right, you're I an orange am. man. and But you live <laughs> yeah. in Dallas, so I wonder if you're struck by, you know, here in New York, everyone is vaccinated, and no one's really fighting back against it or, or hesitant. And I, I would gather that in states like Florida and Texas, um, you have a lot more hesitancy. It's really incredible. On a personal note, my dad, who was a New York resident, died of the virus, and he would have been the first in line had they had the vaccine, oh, right? I'm so sorry. Um, I'm sorry. That early on. But yes, in fact, it's interesting because two of the three largest healthcare systems in the Dallas-Fort Worth area have put in mandatory vaccine requirements. The other one, UT Southwestern, can't. Why can't they? Because the governor of our state has said you cannot mandate it, and they are a public entity. So it's interesting times here. Well, and the governor of Florida has um, refused to declare a state of emergency, and as a result, they're having difficulty getting oxygen to the right places. There is enough oxygen there. They mm -hmm. just don't have the licensed drivers who are equipped to carry oxygen. And uh, Do you think that we need more federal action here, Janet? I think we're going to have to. I think that it's the only way. Because think about, when it, it, heartbreaking when you talk about oxygen, right? But imagine, in, especially in rural areas, where hospitals have closed to begin with. It could take someone 40 minutes to drive to a hospital. You've got to be able to have access for people. And I, I don't know if we don't have more action what's going to be able to, to happen. We can also hope that at the end of the month, I believe that the FDA will finally make this not emergency authorization anymore for the vaccine, that may help us as well with vaccine hesitancy. Quick, uh, we just got 20 seconds here. Are healthcare workers paid enough in the U.S.? I'm normally in Germany, and they are definitely not there. I think in some cases, I think that we are, for physicians, for nurses overall, we're, in, we're definitely in better shape than in some countries. But in some very high demand areas like medical assistance, they're still paying them not much more than minimum wage, that's going to change. It has to, I guess, if you want to get them yep. in, in the door. Janet, thanks so much um, for your time. Uh, really sorry for your loss. And um, I, I think we all appreciate what you're doing 
to help the rest of us in this pandemic. Jan Elkin is Chief Executive Officer of Icon Medical Network. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's get over to Brent Schutte right now. Brent oversees more than $220 billion in retail assets, joins us on the phone from Milwaukee. And, you know, before we get to the finer points of finance, uh, you know, the Fed policy issues, rates, inflation, et cetera, I just got to ask about, you know, Robinhood and meme stocks. What's your take on all this? Because we saw that, um, you know, disappointing IPO, and then it doubled in the last two days. Yeah, I think people focus too much on it. So it's kind of interesting that it occurs. And certainly there's some uh, retail investors who are probably piling into these things and pushing them back and forth. Uh, But hopefully for a majority of people listening to this call or on your radio station, (laughs) they'll focus on those finer points of finance that you mentioned before, which I think are going to drive their portfolio longer term. So So I I do think at some point some of these stocks are going to come back to earth. Uh, And the question is when, probably not if. Uh, And to me, if you have too much in those, you're going to probably not – uh, enjoy having that much in them at some point in the future. We probably could say a lot of that retail trading action is a bit disconnected from the fundamentals. So let's talk about some of those fundamentals. When it comes to the Fed, obviously we have the jobs report tomorrow. And I'm wondering if a strong jobs report is actually a bad thing for this market in that may that may mean a more hawkish Fed. Possibly, but I think, uh, you know, maybe that'll be the reaction tomorrow initially, but I think uh, people will gather their heads and see that it actually means that stronger economic growth is on the way and more wages are occurring and and the economy is pushing forward. And so there will be certainly a reaction post-Fed, and I suppose that if it's really strong, it could be that reaction because it could be the more hawkish Fed. Uh, But in general, I I wouldn't uh, trade that too much. I would think more about what that means for the, the intermediate term, which is stronger economic growth. Uh, and I do believe that inflation will fall back, which I think clears one of the fears about the Fed. Nonetheless, we still see rates at, uh, well, the 10-year at 119 right now. If I take a look at the real yield, as I've been doing a lot more lately, I'm looking at uh, negative 113, but we were down at negative 122 yesterday. Why, um, with your degrees in finance and business and your CFA. Why, why do we see rates this low? Well, I mean, I think you still have uh, central banks around the world still buying a lot of bonds, which obviously puts downward pressure on yields in many cases. I think you also have a lot of fears in the market. And so if you think about it in the way we've thought about it over the past few months is that we got to June and we kind of were where we thought we might be and everything was pushing that direction. So COVID cases were coming down. Economic growth was finally here. Uh, And then we got there and people said, what's next? And so you have a cross current of fears that I think are out there. You have the too much crowd who's worried about inflation and thinks it may cause the Fed to do something. You have the too little crowd who's worried about the Delta variant, was worried about China rolling over, was worried about peak economic growth. And last but not least, you have the too expensive crowd who thinks that stocks are too expensive and therefore they are due for a fall. And I think the meeting place of all those three cross currents 
was in the 10-year treasury because that is still the safety place uh, for markets. And mm-hmm. when you combine that with what the Fed is doing, I think that put the downward pressure on. I do think that will alleviate as you move towards the end of the year. And some of those fears prove out to be um, not so scary as what people imagine they may be. Yeah. Eventually, I think we push higher in the stock market, which probably take some money back out of the bond market towards the stock market. But within the stock market, I feel like you're seeing those growth fears show up as well in that now the NASDAQ 100 is up 17% on a year-to-date basis and the small caps are lagging. They're only up 12%. And I know you like the small caps. Why do you think that play is going to come back into favor? Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, also what's interesting is it used to be when the when people were worried about growth, it was stocks versus bonds in some way, shape, or form more aggressively. Think about last year. Now I just think where we're at, it's, it's uh, reopening trade versus not reopening trade or peak growth trade versus more growth trade. To me, I, I think economic growth remains strong. I, I don't think we're at a peak. I think we're at a plateau. So if I take you back to the ISMs this week, think about this. You have a ton of new orders coming in. You have huge backlogs of orders. You have to chew through those before growth slows. And even then, you still have an inventory rebuild because customer inventories are at all-time lows. If you think about the $1.6 trillion in excess savings on consumer balance sheets, I don't think you're at peak growth yet. And so if you're not at peak growth, if real rates are negative, as was mentioned earlier by Matt, uh, if valuations are cheaper, and if people are over-invested in tech stocks and meme stocks, I think there's a transition that has to go back to cyclicals, value, and small caps, which typically are beneficial uh, in that type of environment that I just laid out. And I think that's going to be the trade towards the end of the year as some of these years uh, um, kind of ebb. It's very bullish, Brent, um, you know, the, the, uh, the major index, right? What do you think for the S&P year-end? Well, I think the S&P probably uh, does the least of all the U.S. indices, and I think mm-hmm. there's actually opportunity in the eurozone. And so, you know, I, I think we're past the easy stage of a lot of the trades that we talk, talked about. Um, certainly those were trades that we've been on for over a year. And just for reference, we did take our equity ratio down a bit in June to reflect the fact that a lot of the gains have been made. But we're still overweight equities, and we still think there's opportunities. But I think returns more move towards the, you know, the 8 to 10% return range or maybe even a bit lower on the larger indices with still some opportunities in value, small cap, uh, and even probably more so in the eurozone where they're just emerging from Delta um, where their earnings are growing rapidly. In fact, this may surprise some people. They're finally going to overtake their 2007 pre-GFC uh, high. Mm-hmm. So it's taken them that long. Um, that was a cheap market that needed a catalyst, and I think it has it right now. All right, Brent, great to get some time with you. Thanks very much for your insight. Brent Schutte there, Chief Investment Strategist at Northwestern Mutual Wealth Management. Brent oversees $220 billion in assets, and he is bullish stocks. But as he said, more the small caps, uh, cyclicals, and what's going on in Europe. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.